Abba, Father, you have poured your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to every individual in this room today, deep into our hearts, Lord, so that the words that are heard are not my words, Lord, but your infallible word. We ask you to open now up to us, Lord, your scriptures and expound on them, Lord, so that we might read, learn, inwardly digest all that you have to say to us as a community in this place today. And we thank you in advance for doing just that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, last, did you all behave when I was gone? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, last week we were on staycation and so we went to Magic Kingdom, of course, because we have a one and a three-year-old and we rode that um, ever famous of rides, It's a Small World. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about uh, as we rode through that ride is that we actually long for a world like that, where there are people of different tribes, tongues, and nations getting along, dancing, there's festivities, and just nothing is wrong. And for that 15 minutes of that ride, the world is just a better place. There's something deep in us that we were created with that longs for a world that is not broken and marred, full of sickness, disease, sin, and death, isn't there? We actually long for that world that is where things are set right. It is that world that we see in Scripture today that is told uh, to us by the prophet Isaiah, a new heavens and a new earth that God will create. Now, in the beginning of the Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, God creates a beautiful world, a paradise, where, and then he creates human beings, and the first thing that he does is he blesses them. God is a God whose desire is to bless and to give the fullness of his presence to his creatures. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve had until, of course, they disobeyed and fell. Now, of course, the Bible goes through the story of the rest of that, and we are living out all of the consequences of that fall into sin, of course, in our own day and age. But then when you come to the end of the scriptures, you again see a beautiful world where the dominion of sin and death have been completely removed and there is no more suffering That comes from Revelation chapters 21 and 22 and the vision that St. John is given by the Lord. But today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 65 for the next few minutes. Now, the context of what's happening is that the Israelites are in exile. And as far as their spiritual health, they're kind of all over the place. Some of them are following the Lord, obeying his commandments and walking under his blessing as covenant members of his covenant family. And some of them are on the complete other side of the spectrum and have turned away from him to foreign gods. They're engaging in idolatry and sexual immorality with pagan nations and all of that stuff, child sacrifice, all kinds of horrible things, and they're completely gone astray. And then there's everything in between, people who are being torn between both of those things, following God faithfully and turning away from him for the world. Kind of sounds a lot like the Christian church today, doesn't it? And God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to try and inspire faithfulness in the hearts of his people. 
He's saying, I want you to know what I am going to do. Right now, you're in a situation that's very difficult and trying for you. And many of you are losing faith and turning away from me. But you must know that there is hope because I am going to make a new heavens and a new earth where suffering is removed. And I want you to know that your faithfulness will be rewarded for those of you who continue to walk in my ways and continue to follow me and put your trust in me. And so we get a foretaste of what this world will look like when Isaiah tells us about this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and new earth. Now, verse 17, we're just going to look at the first few verses of this passage if you'd like to follow along. He says, for I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So this is creation part two. This is creation restored. It is cosmic in scale. Nothing is going to be untouched by the redemption, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in all of the cosmos. There is no square inch over the face of the cosmos that we live in over which Christ does not say Mine. And he will redeem all of it. And this is a foretaste, a glimpse of that world. Now he says, former things are not remembered. That is, none of the suffering or the hardship of our present time right now will exist, even in memory. So close your eyes for a minute and think about one thing right now that either is a present trial in your life a sickness, a disease, a financial burden, a broken relationship, or something that has afflicted you in the past, you won't be able to do that in the new heavens and the new earth because it will all be removed from memory. Because the memory of such things would bring sorrow. And as we will see, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place of joy. And those things will no longer be permitted. That should give us hope. Amen? Because not all of our suffering gets relieved before we die. It just doesn't. We believe in the ministry of healing, but not every sickness gets healed. But it will all be removed when God restores his creation. Now, verse 18, he goes on and says this, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. You see, God commands his people to rejoice. We, so many Christians don't understand this. We're not commanded ever to be morose. We are commanded to be sorrowful over our sins. But then that's to lead us back to God so that we can rejoice again because he wipes them away when we come back to him. God commands his people to rejoice. You see, what God wants ultimately in this world is a people who are happy in him and he in them. Right. I want you to hear that because so many people think what God wants in this world is people who are super religious and behave well. What God wants in this world is a people who are happy in him and he in them. If you're happy in him, good behavior will flow from that. Good church attendance will flow from that. Amen. Can I get a witness to that? Some of you need work on that. Not me. I have perfect church attendance. Don't ask my wife about before I was a priest. You see, God will create his very world, his very people themselves to be a joy. Now, when you see the word Jerusalem here in this passage, you should think God's people in Christ. Because by faith, Paul tells us, we are sons of Abraham. We are the new Jerusalem. We are joined with the people of Israel as as the Messiah's people. And so God is going to make us, his very people, a joy in and of ourselves. Do you think you're going to be happy when you get to be in eternal life with Jesus. 
Yes, you are. And he goes on and he says this in verse 19. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives. But oh, I'm skipping ahead. Sorry. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What a vision. God himself says, I will rejoice and be glad in my people. He will be in our midst and we will be enveloped by his presence forever. It's what the fathers of the church called the beatific vision, the blessed vision where we are with God in the fullness of his presence forever. We don't want that right now because in our mortal bodies, we would die if we had the fullness of God's presence. But in our glorified bodies, we will be with him in the fullness of joy in his holy splendor. And God himself will rejoice with us. And all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the things that wrench at our hearts, tear at our faith, create doubt in our lives, challenge us, give us anxiety and fear and drive us away from perseverance and faithfulness. All of that will be wiped away. And God says, it's going to be worth it. You've got to hold on. You've got to hold on. Don't turn to the world to find solace and comfort. One uh, commentator puts it like this. God will rejoice because his compassionate heart will no longer be wrenched and torn by those things that wrench and tear at ours. You see, it will be wonderful beyond belief. And if you go on and read the rest of the passage, it's just an image of life abounding, of, of lions and lambs laying together. Nature will no longer be our enemy, nor we its. It is a place of shalom, peace, God's order in his blessing on everything. Friends, it will be wonderful and we will live in the fullness of the presence of the Lord with no suffering. Do you hunger for that? Now, friends, here's the thing. A very costly price was paid for this world. A very costly price was paid. You see, what comes between us having access to a world where we enjoy the fullness of God's presence is sin. It's what happened to Adam and Eve. God wasn't just mad at them. It's that his presence had to be withdrawn from them because they, they disobeyed him. They, 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 they turned their backs on him and he had given them everything. And it became a barrier to us living in a world that was flooded with God's presence because he had to withdraw from it because he's holy. You see, friends, the fundamental problem in our, in our world that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God's presence, it's, it's not that we don't recycle enough or, or that some people are too greedy. That's true. It, or, or that the planet is heating up because of human consumption. That's true, okay? I believe that. The fundamental problem, though, lies right here in us. Now, G.K. Chesterton, he was a well-known author in the early 20th century in England. He's kind of like C.S. Lewis, but a little bit more sarcastic in his writings. He's, he's wonderful. He's hilarious. He um, once had a uh, an inquiry written to him from the Times in England, and they um, they asked him, they were hoping for his usual wit and wisdom, hoping for him to write some commentary on the state of the world. And they said, Dear Mr. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world today? And his response was, He wrote this, Dear Sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. But you see, he understood. He understood the infection and the power of sin in the human life, that 
where the problem lies with all the brokenness we see in the world is, is right here. You know, you and I turn on the news and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that guy killed his family or I can't believe that that guy shot up the place and things like that. But what we have to realize is that we are all engaged in a battle against that same power that causes those people to do that. It's the same power that causes us to, 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 to talk smack about our boss behind his back. My staff doesn't do that, but <laughs> it's the same power that, that causes us to, to speak offenses against our neighbor. It's the same co- power that causes us to overdrink, overeat, lust, get prideful, become addicted to work, all of those things that, that pull us away from our relationship with God. It's the same power that we're engaged in battle against. And despite all of this, despite all of, uh, of this, our Father loved us so much, instead of throwing immediate punishment out on us, He sent His only Son to die for us. This is a costly price that was paid. If you haven't watched The Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson because you're squeamish, I understand that, but you should really watch it because it's a pretty accurate description of Roman torture of someone who gets crucified. It was a costly price He paid. And he absorbed all of the punishment for our sin. This morning I was in prayer and I was reflecting on this and I had my uh, my iPad playing music and up on the, the playlist came that song that we sing so often here, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And you know, you sometimes you just get hit by something and the Holy Spirit's like, boom! And you're just like, ah! It was like that for me this morning because when it got to this line, it just hit me at me so deep in my heart. They sing this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That is gospel. That is gospel. You see, Jesus died to redeem you and me from our sin, from our estrangement, from our heavenly father. A costly price he paid and he also died to make us a new creation. And so this new creation that is coming when God is going to purge this world of evil and judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom once and for all, for all of eternity. We are to be an image, a microcosm, a thumbnail image of what that new creation is. As individuals and as a church, we should be reflecting the glory of new creation. And so as I was thinking about this, I said, Lord, what do I say about this? How do I make this practical for us? And I thought the Lord gave me this question. What is a healthy church that reflects new creation? What is a renewed church look like? And so the Lord gave me this list as I was working on this this week and I just kept adding to it and I might not read all of them to you, but this is where I'm going to go for the rest of this sermon. I want to ask the question, what is a healthy church? Because today and um, in our lunch and afterwards, we're going to be talking some about vision and stewardship for 2020. And so today's a day that we're looking forward to our future. We're not looking at our past. We're looking at our future where God is calling us. And so I want to address this for us because I think this is so important. And I think that there's some ways that we need to chart out new territory in the way that we live our lives as a church. Number one, what is a healthy church? A healthy church is, and I'm quoting from scripture, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. That comes from Romans 1, 16. The gospel is the power of salvation 
The gospel is not a principle of social justice. The gospel isn't a a principle of being nice to other people. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners from separation from God. And a church that is healthy is not ashamed to preach that and teach that and share that with other people. That is the gospel. Number two, a healthy church is a Holy Spirit hospital for lost and broken sinners. We are not to be uh, polished up religious people who have everything together and look down our noses at people who come in who smell bad or smell like alcohol or whatever. We are to be a hospital for the people who are broken in this community, people who don't know Jesus and people whose needs aren't met. And would that when people come in here, they sense the power of the Holy Spirit and they also see the love of the community that takes them in and says, let us feed you, let us clothe you, let us give you Jesus. St. John Chrysostom Chrysostom said, if you don't find Christ in the beggar at your church door, you won't find him in the chalice. Number three, a healthy church does not say its prayers, but cries out to the heavenly father boldly and expectantly, expecting him to answer prayer, knowing who we are as his children and talking to him as children who believe their father's going to... Give what they ask for. When the believers in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had, Peter had healed a man in Jesus' name and it caused up a stir. All the religious people said, no, 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 you can't do that. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. People have told me, talk about the Holy Spirit too much. Holy Spirit is God. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit here. And Peter and they, the religious people tied to trial, Peter and John, quiet it down. Don't just tone it down a little bit. You're not allowed to preach about Jesus. And they went back and they told the church what happened. You know what the church did? They gathered together and it says that they prayed for God to give them boldness and to stretch out his hand and to do signs and wonders through them that they, so they could continue to preach the mighty name of Jesus. I want to be a church that never holds back from preaching Jesus and seeing him do signs and wonders through us. You know he's going to do that, right? Through you. Through you. Number four. Y'all tracking with me? A healthy church doesn't sing songs, but worships God in spirit and in truth. When Jesus was with the woman from Samaria at the well, he said the time is coming and now has come when the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not looking for your good voice. He's looking for you to sing from the heart to him and not to the people around you. He loves to be worshipped. It gives him glory and it gives us joy. Number five, a healthy church is a place of encounter. Say encounter. Encounter with the spirit of God where broken people are made whole, where sinners find forgiveness, where the sick are healed and members love one another selflessly. Number six, a healthy church teaches the whole counsel of scripture and seeks to live under its authority. Paul wrote to Timothy in second Timothy chapter three, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, rebuke, exhortation, encouragement for the building up of the saints. Friends, we have to live under all of the authority of the word of God. It has to be our instruction booklet, our manual. It has to be everything for us. <clears throat> Number seven, a healthy church resists becoming lukewarm at all costs. 
and seeks to love Jesus with vitality and fervency. I want to read to you. If you have never done it before, you need to read the first few chapters of the book of Revelation because they are seven letters that Jesus gives. He gives words to John the Revelator to speak to seven different churches in the ancient Eastern world. And he's giving them a message because they're under persecution and some of them are growing cold in their spirituality. And he speaks to the church in Laodicea. This is Jesus speaking, okay? He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus. He's not always gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. Sometimes he has a strong word of correction for us. But listen to what he goes on to say. It comes from a place of love. He says, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at the door of some of our hearts. There's not been that tenderness and that intimacy there. And he wants in. He wants to, he wants to call us to repentance for our lukewarmness in our hearts, to turn to him and let the fire of our first love be rekindled. Number eight, a healthy church values spiritual power over satisfying programs. You see, you can have all of the great programs in the world and the most wonderful updated curriculum and the greatest teachers and the greatest sermons. Well, you don't have that, but you can have all of this stuff. But if we don't have the spiritual power that God wants to pour out on us, to activate spiritual gifts in us, to activate boldness in us, to preach the gospel to people without shame, then all of those tools will be useless because we'll be falling short of what the Bible's vision is of the the, the church of Jesus Christ. Healing should be a thing that happens on a regular basis here. Words of wisdom and prophecy, those things should be normal part of the church's life. It's not that those things are just weird so we don't do them. It's that much of the church today in the, in the 21st century has just kind of grown lukewarm and it doesn't walk in the power of the Spirit. And so we need to reclaim that with intentionality. Number 10. This is some that not all of these are, are, not all of these are pats on the back. Some of these are things that I actually need to deal with and address as the pastor and shepherd of this community. This one is one of them. A healthy church prohibits gossip and slander and her members refuse to participate in it. This is a serious thing and it has been the death of many congregations. And I, for one, will not permit it here and I will not entertain it. The, 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 the Proverbs chapter 6 gives us a list. It says, there are six things, even seven, that the Lord hates and considers an abomination. Listen to this. One, a couple of them, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who spreads discord among family. God hates division in his church. And if someone offends you, whether it's me or someone else, or you don't like something that's happening, if you go to anyone else other than to that person first, and by the way, I don't bite. I'm really nice. This is like the meanest I ever am. I I don't hurt people in my office. They don't walk away with bruises. I want to hear your feedback on things. But the second you go to a, a third party and say, I really don't like such and such. I really don't like what I see. You have participated in gossip. 
and it creates division rather than going right to the person and saying, hey, I want to express some concerns to you. That's the godly way to do it according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Because when you get a third party into it, now you've created a triangle and you've created teams and teams are divisions. And God, you know, you can talk bad to me and to my face and insult me and people have done that and I will bless you, I will pray for you, I'll buy you an ice cream cone or whatever you want. But you start slapping around God's bride, his church, it's not going to go well for you. And this is a serious thing that we need to hear as a church. We're not going to be a place that entertains that and lets that foster in our environment. When you, when someone is gossiping to you and they come to you, you have a choice to make. Either you will say, oh yeah, well, yeah, I kind of get upset by that too. Or you can say, hey, you need to go talk to that person. You need to go talk to that person first before you talk to me because this is actually going to become gossip and I don't want to participate in it. It's unholy. That is the only godly way to deal with talk behind someone's back. Proverbs 16 says, A perverse person spreads dissension and a gossip separates close friends. We want to be together, church. We want to love one another. We don't want to talk about each other behind our backs. Now, there's room for disagreement, feedback, negative feedback, all of that. That's welcomed, even criticism. But talking behind people's back is gossip and it is not godly. Number 11, a healthy church consists of members who regularly share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost. Just going to leave that out there for a minute. If we're not doing that, we're falling short of what a biblical church looks like. And friends, I've got a long way to go too, but we're going to learn together how to do that and to walk in the boldness of the power of the Holy Spirit to share the message of salvation in Jesus Christ with people who don't know him. A healthy church serves its community in tangible ways. We do some of that. We do pretty good at that. We're going to do more of that per our discussion in Christian education this morning. And that's an exciting thing. Now, here's one. Some of you heard this this morning in the class, but I want everybody to hear this. I heard this from someone else, and it, it, and it just rocked my world, and I want us to think about this. A healthy church is more concerned with attracting God than it is attracting people. If our worship, our fellowship, our affections are towards God in such a way that brings Him glory, His glory and His presence will rest here, and people's lives will be changed. And people will come for that, for him. And so let's be a church that whose focus is to attract the glory of God in what we do and what we say and how we worship. A healthy church walks in the power of the Holy Spirit, exercising the gifts he gives and activates for the building up of the church. Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts that they are for every member of the body of Christ. So if you have said, I have no spiritual gifts, the Bible says you are wrong. You do, you just don't know about them yet. And the way to know about them is to ask God to reveal them to you and to give you more of his Holy Spirit to be able to activate them and to walk in them. Some of God is going to use some of you in very powerful ways in the years to come. He's going to use some of you in very powerful ways. I'm excited about that. I'm almost done. I know the ravioli is coming soon. A healthy church finds its joy in the presence of God himself. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, right? 
His gifts give us joy, but what should give us more joy is him. The presence of Jesus in our services, in his presence is the fullness of joy. And so we will be about his presence in this church. Encounter. And finally, and most importantly, a healthy church is driven in all it does by the self-denying love of Jesus that was displayed on Calvary. The love that we see on that cross is supposed to be the love that is at work in and through us. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. I am not number one anymore, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Galatians chapter 2. Coming to a close here, friends, Jesus, he died for this church, for every single one of us sitting here. Your name was in his mind and on his heart when he took his last breath on the cross. He died for this church to make it his own, to use it for his glory, to make it a reflection of his new creation. And I believe he wants to do something awesome here. I believe it with all of my heart. He wants to bless this church so that it will reflect his kingdom. And so we're going to follow him. And we're going to do all that we do under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It takes me back to seminary under uh, Bishop Salmon, who's now with the Lord from South Carolina. He always used to say, we're going to do all that we do under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're going to have fun. Can I get a witness? We're going to have fun. We're going to be a people of joy. We are going to see more miracles. We are going to see relationships restored, marriages restored. We are going to see people set free from addictions and brokenness and sin and come to know Jesus. It's going to be awesome, but we're going to do it God's way. We're going to do it God's way. And I invite you. This is the journey that I invite you on, that we get to be on together. That gives me joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and minister to us now in this time of worship, that, Lord, we would sing out to you from the depths of our being, Lord, as if you were the only person in the room looking down on us for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we ask you to fill this place with your presence now, Lord, and help us to honor you, to glorify your Son. Father, we thank you that your love just gets poured out on us continually on a daily basis and you draw us to yourself. Continually do, Lord, the good work that you have begun here. We ask that you would carry it to completion in the years to come. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.